You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> oh, sh- sh- it is a library. <laughs> Got a light? Got a light? This is the library, and these are the stories. Listen well, and pretend. The librarian is the crazy in the eyes, and dark within. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen. We are the Castle Collective, and we'll be live soon. Roses are red, violets are blue. If you can't take horror stories, this podcast is not for you! (laughs) I'm a poet and didn't even know it. Listen to discretion is advised. Welcome to episode number 721 of the Wicked Library. Our extra wicked summer anthology. A big thank you to our Patreon sponsors. They are the folks who made this episode possible. If you're a Patreon sponsor, you may have heard these stories already because you get to hear them first before anyone else if you support the show at the $5 a month and above level. The support of all our Patreon supporters makes these bonus episodes possible. Here at the Wicked Library, our goal is always to support the artists, the authors, the composers, the narrators, everybody who makes the show possible. We want to get their work out to as many folks as possible. So what we do is we take those bonus stories we create for our Patreon supporters. We combine them into this mega episode once a quarter, and everybody gets to hear them so that you guys can discover some new talent that maybe you're not aware of, haven't heard of before. You can go out there and support their work. Now, today's episode is a lot of fun. We have three guest narrators whom you have probably heard before if you're a fan of horror podcasts because they all appear on the No Sleep podcast. We have Addison Peacock, Jessica McAvoy, and Nicole Goodnight. Addison will be telling our first story, Jessica our second, and Nicole the final story. Do check the show notes out today. There's a ton of people involved in making today's show possible, a ton of content. Check out our show notes over at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash 721 for links and information to the narrators, the writers, everybody involved in making the show possible today. And of course, the really cool artwork by Stephen Matico, which pays homage to all three stories focused on the three ladies having pie with the librarian. You'll have to wait until the final story, Mrs. Morrison's Pie, to find out why. It's a big episode, so without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. Let's get wicked. Hello, kiddies. Have a seat, but don't relax. I am your librarian, and this time there's plenty to be afraid of. 
Hold on to yourselves before something else grabs hold of you. Don't worry about the light. It's darker than ever now. Stop screaming. Something extra wicked this way comes. <laughs> This first story is Amputation Capital by Tyler Woodsmall, narrated by Addison Peacock, again, whom you may have heard on the No Sleep podcast. You can also find her over at her own podcast, The Cryptid Keeper. Check the show notes for links and details. Just click on her picture and it'll take you to her page and find out all about Addison. And the same goes for Tyler. Click on his picture. It'll take you to his page on our website. You can find out all about Tyler and his work. Here is Amputation Capital. Getting a client to part with something as personal as skin is a delicate conversation. I've gone over the sales pitch in my head all morning. I put on my best pantsuit, dark gray, black striped button-down blouse, hair clipped in a high bun. Usually I wouldn't be so excited at the prospect of purchasing, but this is different. A newly divorced Megan Maynor has skin with a net value of 400 million, and she has a dwindling living net of 1 million. I haven't felt this much elation for a purchase since I pitched to the world's leading male porn star. I bought his member for 20% of its value. The limousine has been waiting outside since 11 this morning. It's 12.30 now. I grab my briefcase, which I picked to match the suit, walk outside and get in the limo. We arrive at her gate at one o'clock. The chauffeur gives the guard the information and we drive through the gate and down a nearly mile-long driveway. I ring the doorbell and a woman in a maid's uniform answers. I take a deep breath and follow her into a room that sparkles with white tiled floors, gold-rimmed mirrors, and ornate chandeliers. A perfect figure of a woman sits at a wet bar, her back to me. Would you like something to drink? I've only heard her voice in films and television. It didn't sound the same. No. I glance at the white and gold couches and chairs. I'm sorry to hear about your divorce. She turns, her drink in hand. Is that what you're here for? I nod my head. Her skin is olive, with a perfect, unnatural tan. Hair a thick, half-curled, silvery blonde. She's nearly 40, but she could pass for 25. She gestures for me to sit on one of the smaller couches. After she eases onto a chair near me, she crosses her legs. Get on with it. Your stock has gone up. She averts her eyes. How much? Triple. If you were to die tomorrow, your body would be worth over 100 million. I grossly underestimate her net, hoping she doesn't ask for clarification. Her blue-gray eyes grow wide. That number grabs her attention. At least enough for her to look at me. That's more than my living net. I straighten my back. It is. She swivels the drink in her hand ever so slightly. I don't sell skin. I know. That's why I'm here. I've bought skin from hundreds of celebrities on their way down. I'm confident I can change this one's mind. I lean back in the white silk couch. I've heard that your divorce is becoming expensive. Don't believe everything you read in the tabloids. I don't need to read tabloids. I smile, hoping that my newly whitened teeth will give an appearance of professional poise. If you were ever going to sell, now would be the time. 
What does that mean? Your skin is worth much more without you attached to it. Her perfectly unnatural face twists in a grimace. You're saying that my time is up? No, I'm saying that I know you need most of your skin. One eyebrow raises into her bangs. Most? I lean forward and gently take her left hand. I point to the thin, pale strip in her otherwise equal tan, imprinting where her wedding ring had been. I know several buyers who would be interested in this. Even a couple of museums. She stretches out her hand, examining the well-manicured finger. How much? Plenty to cover your divorce. She takes her eyes off her hand and looks at me. That doesn't answer my question. Twenty million. Seriously? I can see her pupils dilate at the mention of twenty million. Ring fingers after a divorce have a high market value. Will it hurt? I put my briefcase on the coffee table and open it. I pull out a small, surgical, stainless steel clipper. Only for a moment. Her calm sophistication turns to fidgeting in her chair and tapping her nails on the crystal glass of her drink. The skin market is highest for a celebrity right before their career is over, isn't it? This is the apprehension every potential client has. That's a rumor. A common misconception. Then what is it based on? I clear my throat. The evolution of celebrity to icon. A complete lie. Desperation is key for sales. And she doesn't have the money for a lawyer. The skin won't be. She doesn't have to finish her sentence for me to know what she's asking. I'm a licensed vendor. I can assure you consumption is off the table. How can you be sure? It's in my best interest. I'd lose my license if your skin was ingested. I don't mention that selling skin for consumption is a federal offense. That is a well-known fact. The argument was brought before the Supreme Court when the market became the most profitable industry of the 21st century. Skin ingestion is considered prostitution by the federal government. But that isn't the real reason the law is enforced. The skin industry would have lost potential customers because skin would be deemed as a fetish market, and celebrities don't want their skin to be eaten, they want it to be admired. The law protects the industry from going down this less lucrative route. Are you sure it won't hurt? Her repetition of the question tells me that pain is more of a stumbling block than the idea of losing a finger. I've been at this a long time. I know what I'm doing. I've always been against selling skin. Her voice is a whisper. Your ex-husband already sold his ring finger. He did? And for a great deal less than you're being offered. She wiggles her finger as if she wants to get more use out of it before it's gone. She takes a deep breath. Okay. I set the clippers down gently on the coffee table. I pull a freshly printed document from my briefcase and a sterling silver fountain pen. I present the pen to her like it was a fragile glass gift. I'll need you to sign this bill of purchase. She reads the paper slowly, then signs. Her breathing comes in slow, steady inhales. How do we do it? I'll just need your hand for a moment. From the inside pocket of my blazer, I remove a needle, filled with clear liquid. First, we numb the area. She holds out her hand. It trembles. You're going to feel a slight pinch. I place the finger in an airtight bag with a small amount of formaldehyde. As soon as I get home, I place the bag in a safe that doubles as a freezer. I sit at the kitchen table and open my computer. It's been less than an hour and the paparazzi have already taken shots of the starlet with the headline, Megan Maynor sells her ring finger. The financial channel puts the skin exchange rate at about 2% higher than I expected. My phone has been ringing ever since the news broke. For the first time in my life, 
I don't particularly know what I should spend the money on. The doorbell rings. I walk through the living room and open the door. A short, burly man with a thick beard and slicked-back hair looks up at me. I'm here about some property you've just acquired. I shift. I'm sorry. My house is under a different name. Nobody is supposed to know where I live. It will be up for sale later in the week. Get in contact with me on Friday. I begin to close the door. The short man puts his foot between the frame and the door. I'm afraid I'll have to insist. I pull the door open. Okay. Before he can get inside, I slam it on his foot and nose. With a push from the other side, the door flings me back. The air leaves my lungs in a painful exhale as my head smacks the tile floor. A scraggly woman with short, black, messy hair stands directly above me. A hulking, bald, bulldog-looking figure stands to my left. I push myself up a little. The short man with the beard leans against the open door frame, holding his face, blood covering his hand and staining his suit. Uh, you broke my nose! The woman picks me up off the floor. Her hand is over my ear, dragging me to the kitchen table. She pulls a chair, and I sit. My skull is empty, but for the red-hot blood that leaks from my temple. The short man pulls up a chair a few feet away from me. I didn't get a chance to introduce myself before you so rudely slammed the door on me. He removes his right hand from his face and tastes one of his bloody fingers like he's sampling salad dressing. I'm Walter Burrow. He points to the bald man. This here is Chris. He gestures to the woman. And this is... What was your name again? Dominique, she says. That's right. As I said before, I'm here about a piece of property you've recently acquired. I think of what I could possibly say to get myself out of this situation. I'm sorry, but I can't help you. Walter puts his finger on his nose, and with a sickening crack, he straightens it. Are you claiming you didn't purchase Megan Maynard's finger? I shake my head. I'm saying it's not here. Walter sniffs. Looks like we came all this way for nothing. Dominique smiles. Walter jerks out of his chair so quickly it collapses behind him. He slams both hands on the table. I don't think you want it to go this way. Right, Allie? I want to know how he knows my name. Well, I'm not the type to play games. So I'm just going to tell you how everything is going to go. You listening? He straightens his jacket and returns to his calm demeanor. In case it wasn't clear from your present circumstances, you're being robbed. Now, you can accept the situation, or you can fight back. The difference only matters to your well-being. My heart is a spasming trapeze artist, and my ribcage is a tightrope. But the thought of the physical pain that I'll suffer isn't as bad as the prospect of losing a finger that's not my own. You think I keep high-profile clients' skin here? Walter walks stiffly and slowly around the table and gets eye level. His nose is purple and red, and I can smell the copper in his blood. Yes. Well, I don't. I put all my sails in. Walter puts up a hand. I need you to measure your words very carefully. Because... You see that woman over there? He points to Dominique. You don't want her to intervene. You see, she doesn't like you too much. Me, on the other hand, well, I don't like you either. But I'm not about to beat you to death. 
because I don't like you. Nod, if you understand. I nod. So, where do you keep the skin? I keep my lips pursed. Walter turns his back. I expect Dominique to run forward and start pounding. She doesn't. Walter picks up the fallen chair and sets it upright. He drags it loudly directly beside mine. Dominique tapes my hands behind my back and tapes me to a chair. Eyes on me, Walter says. My guess is there's a safe somewhere. I'll just sit here with our good friend Allie while you look. The safe is hidden behind a panel of the wall in the upstairs office. I keep my mouth shut. Walter puts his feet on the table and snorts. (laughs) This could have been painless, you know. But now... I'm afraid it's going to be very, very painful. I stare at his unpolished black loafers, trying not to shake. But adrenaline has set in and fear rattles through every muscle. You're scared. You don't have to hide it. I've been doing this for a long time. I know what fear looks like. I try to match his calm demeanor. And what does it look like? You. How did you find me? If I'm going to die, that's the question I want answered most of all. People don't like you very much, Allie. I scoff. People? Yeah. People. Specifically, some of your former clients. I hear that you once bought a cock off a porn star and sold it to a fan. I swallow hard. He told you? No, not just him. Turns out... That in the skin trade, seller's remorse is prominent. I hear loud smashing from upstairs. They knew what they were selling. (laughs) The way I hear it, you severely underpriced the product. I raise a shoulder. That's just the skin business. Walter laughs. I guess it is. To be honest, I'm a little impressed. I could try and run for the door. You don't see too many women in this business. Walter takes his feet off the table and crosses his arms. He scoots to the edge of his chair. At what point does buying skin become thievery? I don't understand the question. Walter holds up his hand, crusted with dried blood. Let's say I sell you a finger. And you tell me it's worth, oh, I don't know, 20 million? But it's actually worth 50 to 60. I have to make a profit. 5 million is profit. 10 is indulgence. 30 is theft. They can sell it to someone else, I say. But that's the thing, isn't it? There's an assumed virtue with femininity. You use that to your advantage. I lean forward. Fuck you. I get what I want because I know how to buy. Never said you didn't. A loud smash rattles the chandelier. We found it, Dominique calls from upstairs. Walter stands and walks to me. Let's go look, shall we? He cuts the tape holding me to the chair, then presses the knife against my bound hands. I feel them go free. Before I can think about fighting, he puts the knife in the small of my back. He leads me up the stairs. A voice from the safe room calls out, In here! Walter leads me to the room furthest down the hall on the left. My office desk lies on its side and the phone is halfway across the room in pieces. 
My once well-organized paperwork is now strewn all over the floor. Walter pushes me into the only chair in the room. The wheels project me backward, but he pulls the chair close to the safe. He touches the knife to my throat. If you would give us the combination... I throw a desperate elbow. It connects with Walter's temple. I charge for the door. A hand grabs my hair and pulls me to the floor. Then Dominique's fists are coming down hard, and all I can hear is the wet sound of knuckles against skin. That's enough, Walter says. Know what I like about you, Allie? You still think there's a chance you can win. My face is feverish hot. My breath comes in painful wheezes. You won't, Walter says. Dominique pulls me up to my knees, facing the safe. Nine, seven, two, two, I say. Walter nods to the bald man. I hear the numbers being punched in. The safe door opens with a click. Dominique hands Walter the airtight bag. Megan Maynard's finger. How much do you reckon it's worth? Retail, you could get about 62 million. He holds up the bag. And how much did you buy it for? Remembering what he said about profit, I don't speak. He lowers the bag and glares at me. Choose your answer wisely. I already know what you paid for it. But I want to hear you say it. Twenty million, I say. He laughs. (laughs) That's a bit of an undersale. You know why a washed-up celebrity is worth more dead than alive? I look at the finger. Skin net is based. He puts up his hand. It was a rhetorical question. What good is currency if it is never exchanged? I don't answer. That question wasn't rhetorical. Nothing. He jumps forward, but not menacingly. Right. That's absolutely correct. If currency isn't up for exchange, it's worthless. That's why celebrities who have lost their earning power are worth more in the skin market. What's your point? How many celebrities have you bought from? I couldn't put a number on it. He cuts open the bag with the finger inside. He walks toward me with it. You know, Allie, I'd hoped you would have recognized us by now. I study his face, his body. A sickening twist of familiarity creeps into my stomach. Maybe this will jog your memory. He drops the knife to the ground and unzips his pants with his free hand. With his trousers around his ankles, I can make out a lump of conjoined flesh. The space between his legs is empty, except for the mangled scar. He points to Dominique, who pulls back her short black wisp of hair, revealing the place where her left ear would be, now a scar. I barely remember that job. I pull away again, just making it to my feet when the bald man grabs me and throws me back into the rolling chair. He stands over me and opens his mouth, pulls back his cheeks, revealing he has no tongue. Walter takes the bald man's place. You remember now? The nervous tension dissipates into sepulchral certainty. I remember the incisions and the products, but I don't remember you. Walter grimaces. I guess you wouldn't. We come and go. He wraps his free hand around my face and pushes my head back, 
squeezing my cheeks. Open your mouth. I clench my teeth. He forces my mouth open, then shoves Megan Maynard's cold, damp finger into it. He clamps my jaw shut. How much will it be worth if you chew it up and swallow it? My eyes water as I gag. He loosens his grip. That wasn't rhetorical either. The finger bobs like a loose piece of gristle at the back of my throat. Sixty million dollars tastes like salt and chemical preservative. For some reason, I imagined it would taste different. I tried to think of an answer to his question that can somehow save me, but there isn't one. Nothing. His broken nose is inches from my face. He's breathing heavily. I can feel his heartbeat through his hand on my cheeks. Start chewing. Where do you think you're going? There's more stories here at the Wicked Library. Stick around or we'll turn the lights off for good. <laughs> this next story, The Pit, was written by Meg Haftall, narrated by the very talented Jessica McAvoy. Jessica is an audiobook narrator. She frequently appears on the No Sleep podcast. She's out there doing all kinds of cool stuff. Do go to our show notes. Check out her by clicking on her picture. Find out information about her work. And the same for the author, Meg Haftall. Click on her picture. You'll find out all about her and her work. Here is The Pit. The Pit by Meg Haftall. The first time I committed murder, I was six years old. I knew it was wrong, but my uncle Jeremy smelled of moldy leather and dusty cigarettes. He watched us on Wednesday nights, when mom had her night class at the technical college. That last night, he brought us a pizza. It had green peppers on it. He snickered when he told me to pick them out of the hot cheese. Ah, Missy, he had said when I burned my tiny fingers. You clumsy nut. I knew I was going to bring him to the pit. It was the end of summer, and soon it would be impossible to get him there. Here in Minnesota, summer changes into fall over one night. There is simply no more warmth, and the leaves instantly turn orange. I figured I had only a few decent summer days left. Jeremy put baby Dawson to bed with a bottle he warmed in the microwave. I had to help him with the buttons. He would have melted the plastic if I hadn't helped. He was drunk, of course. There was never a time he wasn't listing to the side and hiccuping like a cartoon character with a jug marked XXX in its paw. Then I said we should go to the pit. He bent his greasy head back and laughed. It's still hot out. I crossed my arms and tightened my brows so I looked like I was going to cry. Jeremy hated when I cried. He would usually leave me alone with a handful of toilet paper and take a smoke break out on the front porch until I stopped. 
and school's coming, and it's gonna get cold. This is my last chance. I watched as he wiped his red nose with the back of his hand. He considered my face, strained and quivering as though I was on the precipice of a tantrum. Twenty minutes, he grumbled. I went into the bathroom and climbed up onto the toilet to reach my swimsuit hanging on the shower rod. It was still damp from when Dawson and I had gone to the pit that afternoon. I took off my nightgown, the one with the ponies jumping over a fluorescent rainbow on the front, and left it in a pile with my undies. I looked in the mirror as I raked my brown hair back into a bun. I knew it was murder because I was looking into my own eyes and not stopping. As I stood in the cramped bathroom of our tiny bungalow on River Street, I knew precisely what I was doing. We left sleeping Dawson and hiked up the steep hill to the pit. My flip-flops crunched beneath me in the night. Uncle Jeremy carried a plastic shopping bag with my towel inside. The orange glow at the end of the cigarette tucked between his lips was the only light. My eyes grew accustomed to the darkness as we made our way through the wooded gravel path. Then we arrived. The moon was visible now, and its gray light reflected on the water like a dream. We now had to make our way down the rocky incline to swim. We need to be back by ten. Or your mommy's gonna kill me. Jeremy slurred as he slid down the embankment on his ass. The cigarette didn't fall from his mouth. I knew he wouldn't get in the water right away. But I had a plan. I slipped my flip-flops off and put a cautious toe into the water. I took in the small stretch of shore. There were no teenagers skinny dipping or night strollers walking their dogs. We were alone. I got in the black water slowly as he watched from the rocks. I waded out to the middle of the pit. It was very deep. Endlessly deep. The pit was named for its past as a mining pit, iron ore, before it was stripped bare and flooded. Some of us locals swim in the pit. We like to avoid the tourist lakes with the rental boats and the overpriced pop. I got all the way up to my neck before I felt it. The thing in the pit, my thing, caressed my bare legs with its familiar, ghostly fingers. Then it pressed firmer, pleased to see me, and I could feel the tentacles, vaguely sticky and strong around my stomach. It would not hurt me. I knew this from the first time it had tugged at my toes when I was barely four. It had chosen me when I still had puffy swim diapers under my pink suit. I was scared of the sensation of something underneath the surface touching me at first. I had watched most of Jaws on cable with my older cousins. But then there was a warm buzz in my little head. A string of comforting words as it squeezed around me. It understood me. It liked to hear my dark thoughts. The real ugly, bloody ideas that mom would usually slap me for. 
she said I couldn't say things like that out loud. My thoughts scared her, but I didn't need to even say them from my mouth to the pit. Instead, my thing would make me feel special for having my thoughts. It loved me. With a sideways look to make sure Uncle Jeremy was watching, I pretended to struggle. I dipped my head under the surface and pinwheeled my arms as though I couldn't swim. I bobbed back up. I shouted and writhed rather dramatically. The thing, my thing, unfurled its gentle hold on me. It knew what was happening too. I could see Uncle Jeremy getting up on his unsteady feet, his stub of a cigarette finally forgotten, falling from his mouth in a fiery streak. He didn't bother to remove his beloved motorcycle boots before he ran into the water. It was nice, he cared. I had the quickest flash of something like regret. This was my last chance to stop. I didn't have to act out my thoughts, but I wanted to. Melissa? He screamed as he doggy paddled toward me. I kept thrashing and coughing, and I called his name in return. I got you. I got you. He tried to grab my shoulder, and that's when I stopped struggling and pushed away. I could never drown in the pit. The pit would never let me. The thing inside the water was my buoy, keeping me afloat and safe. Uncle Jeremy waited next to me, his lips beginning to tighten up, and his dark eyes looked stormy. Is is this a joke, Missy? Is this a fucking joke? He almost seemed sober. I smiled. Then he felt the pit, too. It must have grabbed him around his ankle because he jerked suddenly, and his head was under the water before I could blink. Then he came back up, coughing and snorting for real. I stayed where I was, watching him drown while I lazily kicked my legs to stay upright. I knew the pit would do what I wanted. It had told me so. It had told me without really talking. He tried to scream, but there was too much water in his mouth and coming out of his nostrils. He clawed up at the water. Just his hands were above the surface, angry, scratching claws. And then my Uncle Jeremy was gone, pulled underneath. I waited to make sure he didn't come up like a floating cork. When I got home, I put my nightgown on, the same one with the ponies, and wrung out my swimsuit. I put it back on the shower rod and watched TV and ate cold pizza with the peppers pulled off until Mom pushed through the front door and asked where Uncle Jeremy had run off to. I told her that he said something about meeting a girl on Fox Bluff. She got red and huffed that she would kill him. She would just kill him for leaving me and Dawson alone. I smiled at her. I had already taken care of it. Seven summers later, Aiden Todd went straight down like an anchor. It had been a hot day, and his pale, freckled skin had called to me from the shore. 
I had been at the pit alone until Aiden showed up. I spent most every day there. Even when the pit was bursting with squealing kids and horny teenagers, I could find a place to float and be with my pit. But I preferred to come when it was silent and the water was still. I could share my scattered thoughts, a steady stream of dark ideas. The pit listened. But then Aiden, a notorious bully, eased into the water with a pair of goggles swinging from his thick neck. I knew he had pushed my baby brother Dawson into the side of a vending machine on the last day of school. Dawson said Aiden laughed so hard tears dripped down his white cheeks. Now, as he swam towards me, Aiden leered at my burgeoning breasts and made disgusting comments. My pit knew what to do. It clamped onto the bully's chubby legs. He went down, quick and silent. I had the oddest sensation of jealousy. He was down there with the pit, in its lair, and I couldn't be. Six uneventful years went by. I was 19 when Jake Tuttle asked me to murder again. He didn't know the pit and I had done it before. We were in my bed, my zebra print sheets all pushed to the end of the mattress. Jake was naked, but I had slipped my panties back up. They're going to pin it on me. I'm going to be their prime suspect. He worked a toothpick into his mouth, considering his options. I've got to have an alibi, Missy. Something real solid. Like lots of people to say I was there and I couldn't have done it. I'll do it. I shrugged. Jake didn't hear me. She's a real bitch, Missy. She hates me. Screams at me. But she wants to get pregnant and trap me. He felt it necessary to invoke my rage. I'll do it tomorrow. I handed him his boxers. We'll make sure you have an alibi. But you have to get her to the pit first. Tell her you'll meet her there late. Um, let's say midnight. Don't text her about it, though. The police will look at your texts. Jake sat up, his scruffy face a mixture of relief and awe. How? How will you do it at the pit? I shook my head. You just get her there, and I'll take care of it. Are you gonna stab her with something? His words trailed off into a trembling whisper. She'll be gone. I kissed Jake on his bare shoulder. But Missy... He blinked. If you're going to weigh her down in the water, like with something heavy, you're gonna need me. You're too small. He pulled me into his chest and hugged me roughly to emphasize his point. No, no. You go to Dexter's. Missy... Jake, I mean it. Just go to Dexter's right after dinner, around eight, and get real loud and invite the boys. Then go home with one of them. Sleep on a couch. Oh, and you should even flirt with that waitress. You know the one with all the moles on her face? We laughed. But then I pulled back and watched him. He stared past me, past the window. The toothpick hung from the corner of his mouth, limp and forgotten. He didn't think I could do it. 
I felt angry he didn't trust me, but mostly I was excited to prove him wrong. He kissed me on the forehead before he rolled off the bed and retrieved his work jeans from a puddle of clothes on the floor. I loved Jake. I wanted him for myself, although he was married and he drank too much and he smelled of stale cigarettes, just as Uncle Jeremy had. She came down the steep decline very slowly, testing each step with a tentative wiggle. Andrea Tuttle was still in her Taco Bell uniform, black greasy slacks and a white collared shirt. She even had the visor, with the recognizable bell stitched in yellow, on top of her blonde, stringy hair. It was dark, and so she couldn't see me wading up to my chin in the deep water. I could feel the pit stroking my sides, reassuring me. It would help me. It wanted what I wanted. I was surprised when she started to undress. Andrea shivered as she removed her uniform and left it on the narrow strip of sand. She placed her Taco Bell visor gingerly on top of her pile of clothes, as though it were a treasured keepsake. Jake's wife wore a bikini, the kind with the string sides that embedded into her fleshy thighs and two tiny triangles that covered a small portion of her swinging breasts. I thought of her picking the tight bottoms out of her ass crack as she wrapped hard shells in paper and scooped guacamole. Andrea made her way into the pit, as slowly as she had crept down the hill. Honestly, I thought I was going to have to push her in, or pretend to drown again or tell her some story about needing her help finding my pearl earring. But I had underestimated her want of Jake, her willingness to trust him. Jake? She was up to her waist, her breasts skimming the water. Jake, you moron, she panted. You better not scare me. Where the hell are you? Her eyes were suspicious slits. I stayed still. The pit swirled around me. It was nudging my legs, like an anxious dog ready for the hunt. Andrea pushed out a little deeper into the black water, probably to avoid the chilly wind from hitting her naked back. Hi, Andrea! I bobbed up and gave a dramatic wave. She startled twisting her head in every direction to see where my voice came from. I think she saw me, or at least made out my figure, because she began to dog paddle toward me. She thought I was her friend, I suppose. It happened so quickly, even faster than Aiden Todd. She was doing her little doggy kick, and then she stopped. Her mouth gaped like a fish on a hook, surprised and angry. Andrea made a little soft sound, the whiny grumble of an indignant child refusing to believe life is indeed not fair. Then she was pulled backward with such force her hair whipped the water, and her hands dug into the surface as though she were on a high ledge and she was scrambling for purchase. But, of course, there was nothing to grab onto, and so she sank down. 
Her hands and feet were in the air like an upturned beetle as her body was drawn into the blackness. I backstroked in the new silence. After a while, I felt the pit come back to me, the pressure of its arms, its ghostly tentacles, its ephemeral body felt good against mine. I was half asleep, dozing in its embrace, when I heard Jake on the shore. I knew he couldn't really be there. He was safe at Dexter's, so I figured it was a dream. I snuggled in closer to the water, ready to imagine it was Jake's arms around me, lifting me up. I wanted to pretend it was Jake's fingers, lightly caressing my thighs. Alyssa! Jake's distinct, gravelly voice whispered from the side of the pit. Missy? I felt nothing around me. No warmth or embrace. I only could hear Jake's voice, cutting and decidedly real in the night. Jake, you moron. He jumped in before I could protest. He should be far away in popular and brightly lit Dexter's bar, playing pool with his friends and telling bad jokes. Missy, is it done? He was by my side in a few single strokes. Jesus, shut up! I pushed him. Someone could walk by! Jake nodded thoughtfully and put his muscular arms around me. I'm sorry. Is everything okay? I couldn't help grinning. Yeah, everything is good. We kissed then. He ran his hands all over me, and I felt like I made him happy. I was useful. I tucked my head under his chin, and I was going to chide him, gently, for not staying put, for leaving his golden alibi. But then his whole body quivered beside me. I pushed back from him to watch his expression. Jake's eyebrows were knit together in confusion. He was still floating in the water, but his arms cycled frantically. No, no, no. Jake, come on. Let's get out. Let's get out. My voice was shaky. I stretched out my hands and tried to grab his wrists. He was dunked then, pulled quickly, and then released. Yes. Jake garbled my name his mouth filling with water. No! I slapped the water with both hands. No, not him! I swam closer to Jake. The pit was wrong. It had it all wrong. I tried to pull him, but he was so big. And the pit was wrapped around his ankle, or perhaps it had both legs by now. Jake went under again his entire body trying to kick away, but to no avail. I could touch him still. I had my hands on his chest, and then he slipped further, and I was holding his shoulders. Then I pawed at his neck, and finally, I held his fingers. I pulled wildly, feeling myself go with him, sensing the water up my nose and in my eyes. For a single second, I thought I would go with him, hang on to the tightening grip, and be in the pit. I let go. I had to. I shuddered, 
the realization turning over in my stomach and my mind. No, 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 you stupid fucking pit! I screeched at the night, at the now hushed water. I could only hear my breath, ragged and desperate, as I tried to look down, tried to see the thing that had taken Jake. I had never seen it as a formed thing. Since I was a toddler, I had sensed its closeness, its affinity for me, but I had never seen it. I had only felt it on my skin and heard it in my head, but I knew the pit, and I knew it was jealous. It was jealous I loved Jake. Knowing this somehow made me angrier. Fire rushed through my veins. It was a complete and overwhelming anger I had never known. I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. I cried into the water. I wanted to kill it. I wanted to strangle it and make it stop being. It touched me then, swished by my ankles with a tender graze. I kicked at it and spat in the water. I could only whimper and shake. The cold night was overtaking me, making my teeth chatter. I was alone. My thing had paddled away into the deep, leaving me to bob in the black water like an unanchored raft. It was with them. It was with them, and not me. Shivering and tired, I swam back toward the shore. For one hopeful instant, when my toes touched the first particles of sand, I thought it was the pit reaching out for me. No, I was more alone than I felt was even possible. And it wasn't Jake whom I missed. I knew this fully. The pit had abandoned me. My anger cooled, and I could feel only an overwhelming loneliness. I'm sorry. My throat was raw from screaming. I wanted to say more. I wanted to reason with the pit, make it understand it had made a mistake, but it was alright. I forgave it. I loved it. But I was in the shallow end, my butt in the sand and it probably couldn't hear my words or my mind. I cried. I didn't want to go back. I couldn't walk up to my apartment, dripping pit water, and go sleep. I couldn't work another shift, or play video games with my baby brother Dawson, or swim on a hot summer day ever again. There had to be a conclusion. I couldn't walk away from the pit. As though it heard my thoughts, it appeared. Perhaps it had heard me all along, wherever I was, every second of my life. I didn't have to be in the deep water as I had always imagined. This notion thrilled me. It rippled toward me, somehow blacker than the black water. It was the first time I had actually seen it. It was made of water and a void of lines or shapes. 
It created a powerful wave that pulled me forward into the dark, foamy water, away from the sandy shore. And then the pit twisted around my leg, harder than it ever had before. It did not feel loving like it had when I was a child. It did not caress me as it had after it had killed for me, but rather it squeezed with impossible strength. I knew this was what they all had felt in those last moments, all the ones I had made the pit take for me. I was happy. I was happy to feel it come back to me, to want me. I was happy to know the unyielding command of my pit. I made no more sounds. My head went under, and I knew I would breathe no more air. There was only blinding, infinite night. I was no longer cold or sad. As the slimy water rushed into my lungs, I was hopeful. Perhaps I couldn't go back to my life because I was going somewhere I was meant to be. A beautiful place the pit created for us. We would be together, and there would be no more jealousy. Where I was going, there would be light. I wanted this to be true. But as I descended, a creeping thought entered my last few moments of life. I was in pain all over my body, and this made me wonder that If instead of my thing, the thing that loved me, it was actually Aiden Todd, no longer pale and freckled, but now a purple bloated slug that pulled me into the darkness. Perhaps Jake and his wife Andrea, still warm and angry, were drawing me down. And maybe it was my Uncle Jeremy, slick with seaweed a hollow skeleton in motorcycle boots, who clawed at my legs as I slipped down, further and further, into the murky, hungry maw of the pit. Where do you think you're going? There's more story to come! (laughs) Don't you want us to keep the lights on? (laughs) And final story. This one was written by the creator of this show, Nelson W. Piles. A very talented writer... He's currently working on a couple of different projects. You can find out all about them by clicking on his picture in the show notes. It'll take you to his page on the Wicked Library, and you can get an update on what Nelson's been up to. Same goes for Nicole Goodnight, the narrator for this tale. As with everybody else today, do go to the show notes, click on her picture, find out all about what Nicole has been up to. Here is Mrs. Morrison's Pie. Mrs. Morrison's Pie by Nelson W. Piles Narrated and performed by Nicole Goodnight Mrs. Morrison was too busy to die. Not that she didn't take the threat of death seriously, but 
She didn't have the time or the patience to wait around for it either. The urge to finish the things she had begun was overwhelming sometimes, but she had always been one to satisfy her urges. It was an early, cold, and snowy Thursday morning. With two pies in the oven and three grandkids still in bed sleeping, Mrs. Morrison did not in fact have any time to die. She thought this as she hummed a very out-of-key version of one of her granddaughter Penny's favorite songs. For the life of her, she couldn't say what the song was or who sang it, but the chorus was very catchy. She reminded herself to ask Penny what the song was and maybe if she could send her the song on her pewter. She was still trying to figure out how to use it, but she was getting better every day. Penny, who was 12, seemed to really enjoy introducing her grandmother to new and useful things on the old Acer computer that surprised everyone by still working. You need some new tech, Graham, Penny had said the day before. I can totally trick out your computer if it weren't so... Old, Mrs. Morrison said, smiling. Is that right? <laughs> I was going to say out of date, she said, hugging her grandmother. Old is one thing, but out of date is a lot different. She hugged her granddaughter back tightly. She thought of this as she opened her oven to see how the pies were coming along. She felt the wave of heat in her face, and then the smell followed. The pies smelled delicious, and she smiled. The pies were both buttermilk and were still not brown enough on the tops. She closed the oven door and set the timer for another five minutes. She looked at the old kitty cat pendulum clock on the wall, its tail beating out the seconds. It was a few minutes after 3 a.m. Five minutes would do just fine. The coffee maker began to spit out the final bits of water into its now full pot next to the sink. She went to the fridge and pulled out a small creamer in the shape of a very cute cow, a very recent Christmas present from her youngest granddaughter, Prudence. Little Prue had gotten the money by borrowing from Penny and Paula and the little extra from Mrs. Morrison on the side. She picked out the creamer, blissfully unaware that her grandmother didn't use creamer. Still, it was so cute and today at least, she was going to use it. She made sure the cream was still good, you couldn't trust the grocery store sometimes, and put it on the little table next to the fridge. Everything except for the pies were ready, now just the waiting. She glanced at the clock, and before the time registered, there was a very gentle knock on the door. It was time. She walked carefully down the hall to the front door. Through thin curtains, she could see the silhouette of a woman standing there, moonlight behind her. She could see the snow being blown around by the gusts of wind, and she smiled. She unlatched the lock carefully and opened the door, standing back to allow the visitor inside. The woman stepped in quickly and closed the door behind her. She turned and faced Mrs. Morrison. She stood, well-dressed in a black, pinstriped business skirt with a jacket. She had a pale complexion and deep red hair pulled into a tight bun. Thin-rimmed spectacles hung from the tip of her nose, giving her the look of a schoolmarm. She appeared to be about 45, but her eyes seemed much older. She gave Mrs. Morrison a genuine smile. How lovely to see you again, Mrs. Morrison. Very likewise, Miss Black. <laughs> it's Blake, actually, came the response with a hint of a laugh. Of course it is, Mrs. Morrison replied, equally amused by the old joke. Miss Blake didn't appear to have a single snowflake or a bit of moisture on her person. Mrs. Morrison noticed this as well, but said nothing except... Please, come in all the way. I have some coffee. Miss Blake nodded and walked down the hallway to the kitchen as if she knew her way around the house. Mrs. Morrison watched as Miss Blake regarded each picture on the wall and stopped at one in particular. This is new, Blake said. How very adorable. 
The picture in question Mrs. Morrison saw was the picture of her three granddaughters from last year's Christmas with her son James and his lovely wife Francine. They were all in their pajamas except for Prue, who was mostly naked and all of them were laughing. Someone had stuck a huge bow on Prue's head. That was taken last year, Mrs. Morrison said, smiling. Before the accident. Yes, Blake said. I was very sorry to hear about that, Mrs. Morrison. She looked at her host. Mrs. Morrison nodded. I've made coffee, she said quietly. Blake nodded and continued into the kitchen. As Mrs. Morrison walked past the picture, she absently brushed her fingers across it and followed her guest. Blake took a look around and inhaled. Buttermilk pie? She asked, a smile poking at the corner of her mouth. I recall it was your favorite of all the pies, Mrs. Morrison said. Please, have a seat. Blake sat herself and put her purse on the floor next to her as Mrs. Morrison walked to the coffee pot, turning off the oven on her way. It certainly remains a favorite, Blake said. Although you've made some pretty wonderful pies throughout the years. Mrs. Morrison returned to the table with two coffee cups, with saucers in one hand and the coffee pot in the other. She placed the cups on the table and Blake took the top one. She placed it in front of the empty seat and smiled. Mrs. Morrison poured coffee in Blake's cup and then her own. She set the pot on the kitchen island in the center of the room and grabbed an oven mitt. She opened the oven and pulled out the pies one at a time to cool on the island. She tossed the oven mitt in between the pies and sat down. Blake was holding the cow creamer and was smiling. Gift from the youngest? She asked. Of course, Mrs. Morrison said proudly. Absolutely darling, Blake said genuinely, pouring cream into her cup and watching as the cream came out the little cow's nose. She chuckled, snorting a little. She offered to pour some into Mrs. Morrison's cup. No, thank you. Blake put the creamer down. The two women looked at each other, letting the silence sink in before either raised a cup to drink. Blake sighed. <sighs> Tired? Mrs. Morrison asked. You know that I am, Blake said. And yet, you come each year, Mrs. Morrison said, taking her cup and sipping. I have to, Blake replied. You know that I do. It would be something akin to a miracle if perhaps you didn't. Maybe just one year. Skip it. You certainly don't come for the pie. At this, Blake laughed. <laughs> well, it certainly is a consolation, she said. Before we get started, I have to know something, Mrs. Morrison said. Did you know? For a moment, Blake didn't know what she was talking about, but she caught on rather quickly. Your son and his wife, Blake said. Yes. Mrs. Morrison said, nearly through her teeth. Did you know it was going to happen? Was it you? Blake took another sip of coffee. It wasn't me, she said, putting the cup down. I promise. I found out after the fact. I only have one... Blake struggled to find the words. Victim? Mrs. Morrison offered. No, not victim. You're hardly that, Blake replied. My herald was. Neither was he. You know how this works. Yes, I do, more than most. I just needed to know it wasn't you, that's all. I cursed your name for quite some time. Forgive me, but I didn't think it was you. Still, I needed to be sure. I understand, Blake said. But it doesn't change anything. Oh, but it does. How so? Our meeting last year. Do you recall? You know that I do. Then you know why I've changed my mind. Blake sighed again. <sighs> Sigh all you want, but it's simply not going to happen, Mrs. Morrison said. How long have we been doing this? Blake asked. A while. Thirty-five years. That's how long. 
No one has ever gone that long, ever. I have, Mrs. Morrison said, smirking. Yes, you. Only you. Well, I'm on a roll. So it would seem. But you can't do this forever. Mrs. Morrison was going to say something, and then stopped herself. You think you can, Blake said. Mrs. Morrison shook her head. No, and I don't want to either. But this is different. Much different. And it's not my fault. How do you figure? You, Mrs. Morrison said, sounding angry for the first time. You and your kind, taking and taking always, on your terms. Only your terms. Except for you, Blake said. Because I know better. Because I'm stronger. Because you goddamn robbed me. Blake said nothing. And you know it's true. That's why I'm still here. That's why I'm still not coming. And because of what you did, I'm not going this year either. I told you it wasn't me. It was you, your ilk. Whatever you call yourselves. We maintain balance, Mrs. Morrison interrupted. Your goddamned balance. You don't want chaos, in spite of the fact that chaos is all you do. Chaos, grief, sadness. How is that balance? There's no light without dark, Blake said without conviction. Mrs. Morrison sniffed. Whether you believe me or not, Mrs. Morrison, that is balance. For there to be joy, there must be sadness. For there to be life, there must be death. What about my balance? What about the balance of those three little girls? Can you honestly tell me that there is a good thing that can come from them losing both of their parents so early in their lives? Was there some kind of balance when you took my Harold from me and left me to raise my boy alone? And then you take him too? Where's the balance there? The scope of the balance isn't for me to say, Blake said. Totes bullshit answer. What? Mrs. Morrison glared at Blake for a moment, then softened. It's something my Penny says when I tell her she can't do something. I'll say the dreaded because I said so, and she'll say totes bullshit answer, Grandma. Under her breath, of course. Blake looked at her stone-faced for a moment, and then began to laugh. After a moment, Mrs. Morrison did as well. Mrs. Morrison, I don't know what to say to you. Even after 35 years, I don't know how to explain balance like this to you. I've tried. Oh, I know you have. I remember the first time you said it was like trying to explain the color blue to an ant. Blake laughed again. Oh, that was where I made my first mistake with you. Quite, Mrs. Morrison said, getting up. I think it's time for pie, don't you? Blake nodded. Mrs. Morrison took two pie plates and placed them on the now somewhat crowded kitchen island. She also grabbed her pie cutter, which was another Christmas gift. This one from Paula, who was somewhat of a growing math legend in her school. She had found the pie cutter and server online that was the word pie, which Mrs. Morrison found endlessly amusing. So, you're tired of this? Mrs. Morrison asked. Well, I am too. And because of that, I'm willing to make you a deal. Blake seemed surprised. A deal? Yes, a deal. No more games, no more early morning visits, no more arguments about balance. Blake nodded. You interested? Yes, very much so. Good. Here's your pie. Take a bite first and then we'll negotiate. She placed the pie with a fork on the place in front of Blake, who greedily began to eat. Mrs. Morrison sat down and did the same. Delicious, as usual, Mrs. Morrison, Blake said. Thank you. More coffee? No, no thank you, Blake said. Tell me about the deal. 
You're excited about this, aren't you? I wouldn't say excited. Interested, perhaps. As you know, we aren't exactly supposed to make deals, per se, but... But I'm an exception. Blake nodded. And tell me why I'm an exception. Blake's face turned red and shook her head. No. After this long, you can tell me. I already know why, but for this deal to work, you have to tell me. Blake slumped. Because I've always felt guilty. Yes. Yes, you have, because you know I've been right. No, not right. That's not exactly the right word. You were honest. What do you mean I wasn't right? Blake shoved another piece of pie into her mouth. You weren't upset that I took your husband. You were upset that you couldn't go with him. Mrs. Morrison looked stunned. You didn't want to be left alone to raise your son alone. You were afraid. So I was surprised when I came back for you and you refused. Mrs. Morrison allowed a single tear to fall from her eye. I suppose that's true to a certain degree, Mrs. Morrison said. It was a selfish thought, I'll admit that. But after I had the time to think about it and you showed up, I couldn't do it. I wouldn't do that to my son. He was devastated. He didn't deserve that twice and you knew it. I suppose I did, Blake said. And that's how we began this tradition. It's nice to know some of the little legends were true, Mrs. Morrison said, smirking. What was the first game? Do you remember? Jenga, Mrs. Morrison said proudly. I beat the pants off of you. You have always beaten the pants off of me, so to speak. Every time. I know you cheated on most of them. I'm not going to admit that, she said quietly. Blake smiled. You don't have to, because I allowed it. Mrs. Morrison looked at Blake. You did? I did, Blake replied, biting another piece of pie. Like I said, I felt guilty, but I had always hoped that you'd eventually get tired. Mrs. Morrison nodded. Last year, I got tired. I was going to come with you this year, honest, but I can't now. Why not? Mrs. Morrison raised an eyebrow. My granddaughters need me. It's not about what I want anymore. It's about what they need, and they need me. I'm the only living relative they have, and I'll be good and goddamned if they're going to be raised wards of the state. And so you have a deal. I do. Well, let's hear it. Maybe I will have some more coffee, but allow me to get it, please. Blake stood up and collected the coffee pot from the island before Mrs. Morrison could protest. Blake poured a little into Mrs. Morrison's cup and then refilled her own. She sat, resting the pot on the small table where they sat. Thank you. Mrs. Morrison said. Please continue. She took a sip of her coffee, and Mrs. Morrison cleared her throat. I will come with you, free and clear, no game of chance, no arguments. We won't even have to play a game tonight. But I have three conditions. Only three? Only three. Blake waited as Mrs. Morrison took a sip of coffee. One, she began. If any of the girls are on some list to balance anything, they are to be removed so they can live a long, full life. Blake nodded. Two. I wish to go in my sleep. I don't want to know the date or the time, but I don't want to suffer. Please, no long-term illnesses. Just take me like you took my Herald. And three. A small grin formed on Mrs. Morrison's face. You will wait twelve years to do it. Twelve? Blake asked. Yes, twelve. No more, no less. In twelve years, Prue, my youngest, will be eighteen and likely in college. 
Each of the girls have rather substantial inheritances from both of their parents and from me when I die. Prue deserves to at least be an adult before I die. I want to see her graduate high school. I want all three of them to have as happy as a childhood as I can provide for them before I get too old. I don't want them to have to care for an old woman. Twelve years accomplishes that rather nicely, I think. Blake said nothing. She just looked at Mrs. Morrison. No tricks, Mrs. Morrison added. I'll be what, 78? Still able to do things right before things go south for an old woman. I'll go quietly in my sleep. It's a bargain. I'm not sure about this, Mrs. Morrison, Blake said finally. I could set up the Monopoly board now, Mrs. Morrison said. I don't have to cheat to kick your ass on that game for all the times we've played it. Blake chuckled and blushed a little. <laughs> you wouldn't have to come back for the next 12 years. And once I go, I'm sure I can find a way to make you a pie in the after wherever. Blake smiled warmly and shook her head. Oh, I'm afraid there is no pie there. <laughs> no pie? Jesus. Both ladies laughed. I'm going to tell you something, Mrs. Morrison. I saw your Herald after he came with me. He is a very nice man. I went to him to ask his advice about you once. All he did was laugh and say good luck with that. I asked him what he meant, and he said, My Sherry will come with you when she's good and ready, not before. He said that. He did. Mrs. Morrison smiled. No one knew me better. Blake took the last bite of pie and washed it down with the remains of her coffee. Mrs. Morrison, the pie and the company were wonderful, as always. I'm going to miss you. Blake stood up. Mrs. Morrison stood up as well, but she looked puzzled. Miss me? Yes, I'm going to miss you. Mostly, I will miss your pies. Mrs. Morrison's mouth hung open. So, I have a condition myself, if you don't mind. Blake explained her condition and Mrs. Morrison nodded. Then she smiled. Blake walked to Mrs. Morrison and did something she had never done in 35 years. She embraced her tightly. I will see you in 12 years, Mrs. Morrison. No more, no less. Mrs. Morrison reached around and hugged the woman back. Thank you, Miss Blake. Oh, thank you. Blake whispered into Mrs. Morrison's ear. Actually, my name is Miss Black. She chuckled. <laughs> I just hated that you guessed it all those years ago, Mrs. Morrison. Mrs. Morrison giggled, still <laughs> hugging. Thank you so much. You should try to get some sleep, Mrs. Morrison. I can show myself out. Nonsense. Come with me. The two women walked quietly through the hallway, arms linked until they came to the door. Well, I guess this is it, Mrs. Morrison said. Blake smiled at her. Mrs. Morrison, you have always been a woman who likes to finish things that you begin. And you have finished this splendidly. I wish I would have known you under different circumstances. Perhaps one day we will, Miss Blake, she replied. And then you can call me Sherry. I'd like that very much. Blake walked out of the front door and disappeared before Mrs. Morrison had completely closed the door. There was nothing but snow, wind, and moonlight. A few hours later, a certain Miss Prudus Morrison padded carefully down the stairs and into the kitchen where she saw her grandmother fussing over her beloved kitchen island. The kitchen looked neater than usual, but out of the corner of her eye, she noticed two coffee cups on the little table next to the fridge. And the cow creamer. Prue squealed with delight. You used the little cow, she said. Mrs. Morrison whirled around and began to laugh. I most certainly did, Prue. 
she said as the little girl ran full steam to her. And it was absolutely adorable. Did it look funny? Did it look cool when the cream came out of his nose? Prue asked. It's a she, darling. Cows are ladies, bulls are guys. But was it funny? Mrs. Morrison hugged her granddaughter tightly. I'm still laughing about it, yes. Yay! What do you want for breakfast? I smell pie. You want pie? I always want pie. Funny you should say that. Go have a seat over there. Prue walked herself over to the little table and pulled out a seat. Do you want the dirty cups, Grandma? That would be wonderful. Thank you. Prue collected the coffee cups, leaving the saucers, of course, because in spite of being told otherwise, she didn't believe cups and saucers belonged together, carefully, and walked them over to the sink where Mrs. Morrison set them down. Prue then hustled over to the table and hopped up on a chair. Mrs. Morrison cut a piece of buttermilk pie for Prue and also grabbed a small cup of milk. She set both on the table in front of Prue, then grabbed the little cow. Watch this, she said as she poured a little cream into Prue's cup of milk. The cream streamed out of the cow's nose and Prue laughed. Unlike her sisters, Prue's laugh was unrestrained and wild, as a child's laugh should be. At least, that was Mrs. Morrison's opinion. Now, let me tell you what you're doing today. I think you're going to like it. Just me? Well, your sisters too. You're all going to learn how to make pie. Prue's eyes went wide. Really? I mean, real pie? Not that crap pie with the light bulb. Don't say crap, Mrs. Morrison said. This was an argument started last year when her son had gotten Prue a toy baking oven for her birthday. This was also when she learned the word crap. Sorry. And yes, real pie. Prue smiled. Yay! I'm glad you think so, Mrs. Morrison said. Because I need you three to help Grandma with a favor for a friend of mine. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production. NinthStory.com If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. You can be part of helping us keep the shows coming for as little as $2 a month. All supporters get wicked fun rewards like bookmarks, access to our archives, these bonus stories before anybody else, and more. The more generous you are, the more wicked the rewards are. Complete credits and full show notes, including links and information from today's episode, can be found at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash 721. You can find links to our Twitter, Facebook, iTunes page, our Patreon account, and more. Until next time, go ahead, leave the lights on. It makes it easier for Death to find your house when she wants to have pie with you. <laughs>